key to life. Hello, this is Sekou Burmese, your host of The Lit Review, a podcast brought to you by the Academy of Management Journal. In this podcast, we dive into the insights of recent research published in the Academy of Management Journal. We interview authors and corporate leaders to discuss the inspiration for research ideas and how insights from this research apply to current pressing issues in organizations and markets. We have a fantastic guest for this episode, Tim Pollack, the Haslam Chair in Business, Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship, and Kinney Family Faculty Research Fellow at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. In our conversation today, we talk about scandals. Now, Tim has done a lot of research on illegal action that firms take, as well as a ton of research on reputation and status. In his most recent work, he and his co-authors dive into the anatomy of a scandal, and they ask a very simple question. When is a firm's bad behavior most likely to turn into a scandal? The answer to that question is a fascinating combination of both strategy and luck, with insights for executives, employees, investors, and other stakeholders. I also talk with Tim about his recently published book on storytelling and academic writing. He shares some of the common mistakes that he sees in writing today from students and co-authors and provides some tips about how you can make any of your writing more interesting. I hope that you enjoy this episode of The Lit Review, the last of season one, and my discussion with Tim Pollack. My guest today on The Lit Review podcast is Tim Pollack, the Haslam Chair in Business, Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship and the Kinney Family Faculty Research Fellow at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Tim's research considers how social and political factors, such as reputation and celebrity, influence important firm outcomes. His research has been published in all of the top journals in our field, and he is widely recognized as one of the more insightful researchers of his generation, as evidenced by numerous research and teaching. I told Tim I was going to embarrass him on this part. He also served as associate editor for the Academy of Management Journal from 2010 to 2013. So he knows in particular how busy my life is right now and uh, is very appreciative of his time. Uh, Hi, Tim, and welcome to the Lit Review Podcast. Hey, Seku. Thanks for inviting me. It is my pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start uh, by discussing uh, a paper that you and your co-authors have forthcoming at AMJ. Uh, This paper, I like to describe it, dissects the making of a scandal. Uh, uh, The logic, as I I read it, is that uh, if you take the number of firms that are engaged in misconduct, only a small subset of them will actually face what we call a scandal. And that is because for misconduct to become a scandal, it requires public attention, and public attention is influenced by context. And so this paper investigates what are these contextual factors that might predict when misconduct will become a scandal. So before we get into the paper, I just always like to ask, what got you and your co-authors interested in the topic of of scandals and misconduct? I've been doing research in this on and off for a while. I had a paper at AMJ in 2010 with Yuri Mishina and and a couple other folks that looked at illegal actions. Scott Graffin's been has done you know work on scandals. He had that fantastic paper in ASQ in in 2013, looking at the MP scandal in in England and the in the British Parliament. And uh, Jung Hoon, who's our lead author, Jung Hoon Han, he's uh, one of my former doctoral students. And when I moved from uh, Pennsylvania to from Penn State to 
to University of Tennessee, he was at a point where he needed, uh, I, I couldn't continue to chair his dissertation, although I could be on his committee. And so he started working with Shrikanth Parachuri. And Shrikanth had always done a lot of work on scandals. And so that got him interested in scandals, and that became part of his dissertation. And this and this paper actually builds on some of his dissertation data uh, to, to, to do the study. So that's kind of how we all got to this we've all had different interests in it and it all kind of got came came together in this uh in this particular paper yeah so you guys all love scandals and terrible things happening and salaciousness and um yeah it's true it's very true i mean did you ever watch scandal the show on abc i did not but i'm i'm but i'm aware of it did you watch it Oh, religiously uh me and my wife watched it all the time it's a shonda rhimes show it is Expertly done, uh, very salacious and incredible. Uh, it gets very soap opera y, but I recommend the first season. I think you'll like it. Okay. I'll have to pick that one up. All right. So, uh, in your view, uh, what are the key findings uh, of this paper? What are the things around this paper that resonate uh, most with you? In many ways, it's a really straightforward paper, and the key findings, you know, are, you know, we're fortunate our hypotheses were supported. But the, you know, the idea is that other transgressors' behavior, their status, and their categor- categorical proximity matter to whether or not a focal firm's misconduct is going is going to be scandalized. So what we found was that the more other high-status actors within the focal transgressors industry engage in a engage in a, a miscon- the same misconduct, the more likely that actor's uh, misconduct is to be scandalized if they're also high status. One of the interesting things was if you're not high status, it doesn't really affect you. But for mm-hmm. middle and high status firms, there tends to be there t- there's there's more likely to be to be an effect. And and we argue that this is because you can uh, you can create patterns or see patterns in the data, whether or not they actually matter or whether or not it's a real pattern. It gives the media a story to tell, right? It gives there's a nice attributional story that they can make, and so they make this industry-based story, and so they start looking for and are going to be more likely to talk about and find newsworthy other scandals in the same industry. The flip side is that if, if the if all the scandals are taking place either in another industry or they're scattered around different industries. It actually has the opposite effect. So the more high status scandals there are outside of your industry, the less likely you are to have your your misconduct scandalized. So so that would those were kind of the, the, the straightforward expectations and findings that we had. So kind of even more generally, um, I think it's really important to recognize how you know how important context is to to our theorizing. We so often treat these uh treat these things acontextually you know we look and we you know or or we hold all else equal and we try to basically control for the context as opposed to study the context and you know our statistical tools they're so reductive they reinforce this you know as well but the context and looking at things a little bit more holistically is where i think is really interesting that's where you find the new nuances that's where we find differences in patterns and i think it's also why sometimes across different studies you find inconsistencies and in findings because people don't look at context, and there are these subtle contextual differences that aren't accounted for that you know get picked up in the main effect in the analysis, and so we we lose these interesting findings and patterns that we can that we can look for when we consider context more rigorously. I guess we should say. Yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of comment on that because it's that's really interesting thinking about the context. I think we almost say this as a joke. Uh, the it depends response mm-hmm. like does this cause that well it depends and that's kind of thought to be a cop-out 
and the academic yeah. cop out. And what I love is that I, I what I hear you saying is that's not a cop out because the it depends on what matters because the what often matters, right? And so despite the fact that in uh, a lot of circles within academia, the it depends might be kind of eye rolling within practice, what does it depend on is really important uh, because that's the decision between whether or not should we be really worried about this actually becoming blown up or should we be less worried? And the context, the the factors, the it depends uh, really matters. And so I love the fact that you know, something that I think makes a lot of common sense when I teach, you know, the, it depends the students, that's all they care about. But in academia, sometimes that's the, oh yeah, no control for that. You're saying like, no, 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 we should actually be studying the the context, the studying the, it depends factors. Right. Cause you can get opposite effects. You know? And so, and, and that you may, we may find no effect when we look at it in the aggregate, but we can find opposite effects or one may dominate the other. Now, the flip side is that, like with your students, I'm sure you found, just give me the list. Give me the five bullet points that I need to know to make something happen. Yeah. And they don't want to know about the nuance, right? They, and they want it to always be true. And so yeah. that's why, and that's what, you know, policy folks want as well. Mm-hmm. They just want, give me the straight up answer. And I think this is why economists have so much more influence than organization theorists is because while we're saying there, it depends, they're like, no, 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 it's all about incentives. Just do this. Mm-hmm. whether they're right or not. And that's why so many prescriptions are bad and academics are much better at explaining the past and predicting the future. But, you know, if you if you can say it depends, but then say, if this, then this, in a consistent way, then at least you have something that people can can hang their hat on a little bit more. Well, you're, you're preaching right now. So uh, <laughs> I feel like putting a collection plate, amen, orc theorists, we, we matter. All right. Uh, <laughs> Did I, were there other things about the paper? Um, sometimes unexpected, right? So sometimes there are things that you come in thinking, oh, I think it's going to go this way and it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes things that don't make the paper itself. And I I was just curious, is there anything yeah. unexpected that you learned from the paper? So, I mean, I guess, you know, empirically, the two things surprised me. One was that the, the effects of outsiders completely attenuated the effects of, of a focal firm status. So I, I expected it to weaken it, but I didn't expect it to wipe it out. And so mm-hmm. that was that was surprising that the that the outsider effects could be that strong. Um, the other thing I was surprised at was how few firms actually got any coverage at all. I mean, it's like over you know almost two thirds of our sample had zero coverage of their misconduct. Of their and we we're studying data breaches, so they had you know so their data breaches got zero media coverage, and we were looking at like all English language newspaper you know media so it was cast a, pr- a pretty broad net and it's like man that 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 surprised me um as well so i guess uh the other thing that surprised me when we started working on this paper was how little work has actually been on the antecedents of scandalization yeah. i found like two papers by this guy in political science where he predicted whether or not you know a governor's misconduct and president's misconduct would get scandalized hmm. and that was really Kind of it, you know, and especially in our field, what what's more common is people like assert this is a scandal and then they study what happens and how it affects different people and, and that kind of stuff. But whether whether or not something scandalized is in question, it's kind of like that that pornography. I know it when I see it, mm-hmm. but I can't I can't define it. <laughs> so so, you know, so being able to provide a little more background on when and why this happens, I think was 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 really important to us and so that's what you know it's a big part of what i wanted to you know to 
to contribute with this study and to get some more insight into, okay, why, you know, why some misconduct and not others? I think it's a really important issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I also too uh, recall all the zeros in, in the data set as I was reading and I was like, okay, so most misconduct just is a tree falling in the woods. No one's around uh, and it goes. And then in other places it goes viral, right? I think you had Mm -hmm. from zero to 3000 mentions uh of a scandal in two, in the range. In two weeks in yeah, two in weeks two which weeks. is gosh um so you know if we expand out a bit the two things i think i that are top of my mind as i as i read through the paper and thought about our conversation so the first is my sense is corporate scandals are becoming more prevalent and so it was a little surprising to see how few aspects of misconduct lead to scandal but You've done this for a while. You have co-authors that have looked at this for a while. What is your sense? Do you think these things are becoming more prevalent? Is it just that we have way more media than before? What's your sense as to the cause of, of this? I don't know that firms are behaving badly more than they did in the mm-hmm. past. I think there's always been a lot of bad behavior to, to, to go around. But given the definition of a scandal is it has to be misconduct that's made public, I think the publicity of misconduct and corporate misconduct is happening more. And 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 uh, to you know, you alluded to kind of what I'm thinking about. Technology, Matt, is is playing a big role in that. I mean, everybody has a video camera in their pocket now, mm-hmm. right? So it's a lot easier when something happens in the in the moment to capture it. And people and for corporate scandals and things where people are being able to collect documents, more stuff's electronic, yeah. So it's easier to collect. And with social media and websites, WikiLeaks, whatever, it's a lot easier to get stuff out there and get it noticed. Hmm. So, And you don't have to be mediated through journalists quite as much. So yeah. journalists still play a really important role because they're the ones who pick up on and then re-report it and and really bring it to, to the public's attention. Because things can go viral online, but usually there's a boost in that, too, from the... Hmm from the media. And so the media starts covering social media as opposed to just talking to people directly, or they end up talking to people directly, but they get tipped off by social media as well. So, but that's what, and then the 24 hour news cycle, more news sources, more outlets, websites, I mean, all these things make it a lot easier when, when, you know, we had, you know, a few major newspapers and three networks that had a half hour of news every night. That, that was a lot, a lot more restricted pipe for this information to flow through. All right. So what you're telling me is I need to put my phone down, get off Twitter, and maybe then I, I would be a little less crazy about uh, the, the scandals. That's fair. That's fair. But to the second point, and you noted, you alluded to this in, in your answer, which is I love the the way that you input media into this story, right? So the fact that media and, and people who are writing about these things are able to see the pattern right? Or at least put together, oh, this misconduct reminds me of similar other ones. And that is a big predictor on whether or not they decide to give it attention and thus make misconduct turn into scandal. You're very careful in the the paper, and I have to give you guys props, that you're not kind of suggesting a roadmap for firms to engage in misconduct. (laughs) It's like, hey, just (laughs) make sure whatever you do is there's other high status people outside that are doing it, right? You're you're kind of very careful, but now's the time to do it. (laughs) I mean, timing, uh, being lucky, all these things, you know, a context is sometimes purposeful and sometimes it is, it is, it is random, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's happenstance, but the discourse around misconduct and scandal 
um, which I'm, I'm assuming is also something that you're you're highly attuned to, towards. You've you've looked at things like celebrity and and, and status and, and how these things go. What do you think are the lessons learned for practitioners in thinking about this? Right, not that this is a, a roadmap for how to engage in misconduct, but assuming that certain things will happen in an organization. What do you think some of the key takeaways that that managers and, and executives can take away from the study uh, of scandals? If you get caught in one, it's kind of a no-win situation. And mm. so I think, I think it's so part of it is just kind of a lot of these things. One of the things we saw was the media coverage started to drop off actually pretty quickly. And I've been, I've been doing another study where we're looking the stuff daily and you know over the and it and it drops off pretty fast. So a lot of times if you just kind of put your head down and 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 don't try to make too big a deal of it, it'll blow over, I think. And 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 the news cycle moves on. And so the flip side of all more stuff being picked up is also means that there's always the news cycle is moving faster. Yeah. And so people are under the next and they forget about what you're doing. And I think you got to look at trends. You got to be aware of what's going on around you. And you know if other firms are getting in your industry are getting are getting in trouble for something, you got to expect that if, if you're doing the same thing, you better check what check on your own behaviors and and do what you can to, to mitigate it. But if it but if you guys get caught out on something, the odds are, you know, it may be more you may be more likely to, to be to be scandalized for it. But also, if it's kind of happening outside of your industry, you actually may be less likely. And so it may, you know, if, if it even if it pops up in the news, people might not pick up on it and it may not, it may not pop up at all. So you have to disclose it, but then not much may, may happen because of it. So, but, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise you gotta, you know, maybe do some anticipatory impression management stuff and all these other impression management techniques that like Scott Graff and Mike Farr and those guys talk about, be ready to implement these things and, uh, and, and, and to think about it and just, and be aware that these things can, can happen. And even though, you may not feel like you're at fault. Like, I mean, like 60% of our of our data breaches are due to hacker attacks. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you can say, well, that's not our fault. But on the other hand is you can say, well, yeah, it kind of is because you let them in, right? Yep. We're, we're trusting you with our data. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my credit card that I now have to, I don't know if you've ever had, to, had your credit card number compromised and had to go through getting a new card and you think about all the places your number is now, all the, yeah. all the places you pay bills, the online, you know, purchase insights and stuff. And it's just like, you can never, it, it, it drags out for months. Yeah. And I, I luckily I've never actually had my, I, my um, identity stolen, but when that happens, it's even worse. So yeah. these sorts of consequences of these things can be really pretty significant for the individuals, which is why it's a big deal to them. Even if you're like, oh yeah, this happens. Everybody in the industry gets hacked. It's not a big deal. It's like, well, it is. It is to the users. Yeah. And you need to understand the implications of that and not just be like the, you know, the blase IT people tell you, oh, don't worry about it. Mm. You know, you got to think about it as a social, you know, the, the social implications of these things. Yeah, absolutely. So first let's, let's all knock on wood because we don't want Tim's uh, identity to become compromised. And he just <laughs> totally jinxed himself by saying, I've never had it happen. So I, yeah, knock I on know, uh, I know. wood in your house somewhere, please. All right. So aside from this paper, you, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, are, are quite accomplished. I've published many papers. And you have recently decided to try and help others be as illustriously published as as you have been by publishing a book about how to write for for academic purposes and this is a book i 
will reveal that I love books about writing because I find them useful, but also how just brave you have to be to write a book about writing, because I'm going to be judging all of your writing in this book since you claim to be an expert, but uh, it's really good. I, I have I have a copy right here on my desk. Um, and so the title is uh, How to Use Storytelling in Academic Writing. And so do you, can you give a, a quick synopsis, a teaser, if you will, knowing that um, you have, these are these are potential buyers that are listening to this podcast. So uh, put on your best pitch voice. Um, and so what what is the uh, kind of overall takeaway of the book? So my main thesis, and that's what the, you know, the, the second chapter is, is about, is how to, th- think about what we do in academic writing is telling a story. What we are doing is we're storytelling and the structure of drama can be applied to thinking about how we write and how we present our information because facts do not speak for themselves. Graphs do not speak for themselves. Tables don't speak for themselves. We have to tell their story and to give the meaning and to get people to want to know what it is that we have to say. And the better storyteller you are, the more influence your research is going to have, the more likely you are to get through the review process. I mean, I'm sure, Seiko, you at this point experience where you're getting where you get a paper and you're like, finally, this one's really well written and, and you're rooting for it, right? Yes. <laughs> because yes. because you can read it, it's it's smooth and it's not like I've got to put this down six times and get up and walk around and to come to to come back to it and all these and all these kinds of things. And so, and that's what you want. And reviewers are the same way. When they get a really well-written paper that's engaging and, has a, and tells a good story, they want to see it succeed. And then they're going to be look, more likely to look for reasons to say yes mm-hmm. than the reasons to say no. Mm-hmm. We can always find reasons to reject a paper. And we want, pe- we want reviewers, we want editors to say yes to it. And then more broadly, once it gets accepted, we want people to want to read it and to remember it. Yeah, and and if and if I have to fight to figure out what your paper's about and what's interesting about it, I'm going to move on to some other paper. Yeah. So 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 it's really for your academic success and for the and for your influence. Um, it's it's just a really critical skill. And when I was a when I was a PhD student, you know, a hundred years ago, um, I had uh, I had Hussein Lablabici for a research design class, and one of the things he said in the in the first class was. There are two things we do as academics. We write and we teach. There are two things we do not teach you how to do in a PhD program. That's write or teach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Unironically yeah. said and, this, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Sam was a great writer. Um, but it was, you know, but that kind of experience that's always stuck with me. And, you know, being an editor, being a reviewer, this is why I wanted to write the book. I mean, it's, you know, it's taking, you know, 20 plus years of my hard one experience and mistakes and so forth and and trying to distill it down into something that could help people move up the learning curve a little bit faster and to dispel some myths that get that get uh put out there by well-meaning advisors and editors and others that's completely wrong and antithetical to to, to good writing and so all right you know, well my you, opinions <laughs> you teed up my my question all right so give give us you know one or two of these common mistakes that you see uh people uh doing in, in their writing that might be well well intentioned but are are hurting right. the quality of their writing so one of the biggest is you know I would boil it down to say they use too many words so clutter in your in your writing Saying something in a paragraph that could be said in a sentence, 
adding all kinds of buffering words before and after instead of just getting to the point. That doesn't mean you have to be just super spare in your language, but you want to be direct and cut out all the fluff and the flourishes that people think make their stuff sound academic. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. People want to, they're worried about the quality of their ideas and then whether or not they're important enough because we place so much importance on interestingness and so Mm -hmm. forth. And so they try to make everything sound like a much bigger deal than it is. And the process just really bury what they're, what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, The second biggest thing I would say is, uh, is, is passive constructions. I hate mm. them. <laughs> and people are afraid. They're, they're told they shouldn't take credit for their own work or their ideas, you know, or they feel like they're not, you know, for a variety of different reasons. But the it's just everywhere in what we write. And because we see so much of it, it seeps into your writing when you don't even, even when you're trying to avoid it. I still write tons of them. And then part of, you know, after I write the initial draft, half the time what I'm doing is taking out the passive constructions that I write to try to make my stuff more active it makes it more interesting more engaging shorter so but those are two those are two of the two of the big ones so i can the, go on but. yeah no, no no that's good uh, so the 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 passive to active is is a uh, a key one because i go back and forth on it and sometimes i think it logically makes sense if you say firms will or firms have done this people have done that and you kind of talk yeah. about it as if well it happened in the past so i'll talk about it in the past and i think what you're talking about is firms do this people do this as if it's happening That's still right active. Now. what i'm saying it was done by whom we'll never know oh no okay yeah that, <laughs> that's bad yeah that's very yeah. bad the the phantom was collected. Person. who collected the data you don't want to know jack yeah. gpt all right um that's good <laughs> hey. what has been the feedback uh on this because you know again this is a, a a a book and i know it came out i believe during the pandemic right uh yeah. So um, yeah. H- how has the feedback been? Have you gone around and talked to people? People responded back. Have they named their children after you for getting their <laughs> publications in? The feedback's been great. Um, I hear from people all over the world who have said it's, it's helped them and who and you know, who, who have read it and really appreciate it. And that they, you know, that it's like I've heard, I've heard more experienced folks say, man, I wish I had this when I was a doctoral student, you know, I've heard that a lot. The idea that this has helped them has demystified so much of what we of what we do. Cause I try to write it in a really nuts and bolts way yeah. and not not try to dress things up as this, you know, this big mystery that the wizards of are you know are engaging in. It's like, you know, here's how here's how you do it. Yeah. Here's how I've done it. This, you know, and you can, you know, just like you can write a cookbook, you can write the recipe that doesn't make it, you can make the dish. Yep. It, there's a lot that goes into it, but I try to provide as much detail to the recipe and not leave out ingredients or techniques so that, you know, people have some have some sense of of what this takes. Because, you know, you and I have had, had great advisors. We work, we worked with people who have who have taught us these things. So we've learned it in kind of the in the apprenticeship mode, you know, at yeah. the at the at, at the knees of masters and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And yeah. so it's a chance to try to, you know, give other folks some of that information. But when I when we did, so I organized a, a, a symposium a, a, when it was when it was supposed to be in Philadelphia and we were online. So I guess mm-hmm. it wasn't 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I was told we we had on story on the art of storytelling. I had a great panel, some fan, fantastic people. Belina Rindava, Tiziana Kasharo, Jerry Davis, Kim Ellsbach, Ben Hallen. And um, and. I was told that was the highest attended event 
online event of that academy. So, which I is see. exciting. Yeah, I did. A, I, yeah, I did a, another a webinar for um, Ibrah Jabaroff. He organized. He's been organizing those those webinars. He started doing yep. it during COVID, and over four hundred people came. So I was like, yeah. yeah so so there's a there's a desire to learn about yeah. this stuff. So I, you know, kind of hit a hit a chord. So it's it's been it's been exciting. You know, it's been exciting yeah. to see, and you know, I hope hope it helps. I mean, that was the goal is to help people become better writers and to make you know your job easier. Thank you. Oh, as editor. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. I, all right. We've given you enough uh, book pub. Uh, Elgar owes me a check uh, for giving you so much time. No, it's a it's a great book. I would strongly recommend it. How to use storytelling in your academic writing. Um, and uh, so you can get that. All right. We're, we're nearing the end here. I have two last final lit review questions that I ask all of my guests. Much of the research in our field is uh, driven by phenomena that we observe but don't understand. And so I, I always like to ask my guests, are there any events or behaviors or trends that really pique your curiosity right now that you're, you know, you're, you're noodling around like, what explains this? I don't quite understand. Is there anything that you can think of that piques your curiosity? Unfortunately, most, most of the trends in our world today just make me sad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, one thing that actually has arisen out of some of that that relates to a lot of the work I do in social evaluations is um, changing attitudes towards expertise. You know, this kind of added this anti-expert bias that's been emerging, given that I studied social evaluations and at, which is based upon having or doing or knowing something, you know, in large part that, that others don't, and then it's conferred by audiences. So, you know, so social construction, what happens if people don't necessarily value what the experts can do anymore? What are the implications for achieving high status or, or building a reputation if uh, if people don't see value in in, in expertise, oh boy, you know, so. so what do they find value in? That's that's the the key besides charisma or or something kind of uh, surface level like that, right. something enduring. Yeah. All right, very interesting. Well, yeah, and yeah, and there's one. The other thing would be the you know focusing on. I, I'm interested. In, I've been doing like more dark side stuff like this one where we're studying the effects of status and misconduct, but what are the dark sides of, of positive social evaluations and also more work on, uh, on negative social evaluations like stigma and infamy. We could, you know, there's been a lot more work on stigma recently. Almost all of it's qualitative though. I'd like to see more quantitative work start to take some of the ideas that all the inductive studies are developing and then do some, some hypothesis testing and development of their of their own and explore some additional constructs. So those would be my future research areas mm-hmm. I'd like to see people do work in. All right. Well, that's great. Okay. Last final question. What is something that you are reading for fun? Not work-related, not a AMJ manuscript for review, though that mm-hmm. can also be fun. What uh what are you reading for fun right now? Um, I like to read novels, uh, I like fiction. I like to, you know, I like to get pulled into other worlds. And so I also love characters with superpowers. All right. <laughs> so, so I read lots of, I read lots of fantasy, uh, type books and horror. So like right now I am in the third book of, uh, Nora Roberts has a trilogy called the Dragonheart legacy. I'm in the, I'm, I'm in the, about halfway through the third book of that trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. There's an author named Sarah Moss who's written a Crescent City trilogy mm-hmm. that I really mm-hmm. dig. Um, Stephen King, of course, uh, Anne Rice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she died, so there's no going to be no more books from Anne Rice, but mm-hmm. the ones she's written were great. 
Um, there's an author named Kelly Armstrong who's written a ton of books. She's really prolific, but they're really interesting. Um, the one of her uh, uh, one of her her series is called the Otherworld series. You know, it's mm-hmm. you know vampires and and witches, warlocks, werewolves, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But they're like coexisting in our society and have like different tribes within that. And it's it's really pretty interesting. Um, and then of course like the Deborah Harkness novels, Discovery mm-hmm. of Witches. In those and those books so that that's the kind of stuff i like to read and yeah. that's yeah uh, escapism it's fantastical um all that yeah. stuff is great i i read for the first time uh an, an emily saint john mandel novel um who did um station station 11 uh yeah. i read sea of tranquility and it it really just took my breath away it was really well done and now i want to read all of her stuff so, um, but the escapism is the key. It's that I can, I'm in this world. It's great. I don't know what that says about our world, but uh, I enjoy yeah. the escapism. Yeah. And and the superpowers. And the, well, yeah, the superpowers I can go back and forth on, but uh, <laughs> the, the fantasy and escapism I, I love. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tim, for your, your time. I greatly appreciate it. And um, thanks for joining us on Lit Review for our final episode of season one uh I, I'm, I'm very glad to have you as a as our as our, our uh not penultimate what is it called finale for our finale um just like the finale of succession is happening soon the finale of the lit review is coming and, and you're the big surprise at the end the twist well thanks for having me i'm i'm, I'm glad i could be your big reveal <laughs> all right that's it for the lit review i appreciate tim for his time and i appreciate you all for listening If you like this episode, please, please subscribe to the Lit Review podcast. You can find it by searching for The Lit Review, colon, an AMJ podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms, as well as on the AMJ homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter. We have a weekly Twitter Spaces show called AMJ Radio Live, hosted by AOM Connect on Twitter Spaces. I'll be joining the show once a month to provide a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and answer any listener questions. This is the final episode for season one. I want to thank you all for the support thus far. We will be back uh, in the fall for season two with more guests. It'll be more lit, more review, all of that good stuff. Thanks to the Academy of Management for their support for this podcast. Special thanks to my producer, Holly Fearing, for all of her work behind the scenes. Our theme music is produced by Key to Life. This is Sekou Burmese. See you next time. Take care and be good. Hey.